Everything Co-op. Bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Welcome, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. Welcome to Everything Cooperative. This morning, we have the absolute pleasure of talking to Kali Akunu, who's the director of the Cooperation Jackson in Jackson, Mississippi. Good morning, Kali. Good morning. Pleasure to be here. Good. Glad you could, could make it this morning. I know I'd listened to you on other shows and seemed like you were having uh, technological troubles in Jackson. A little bit of trouble. <laughs> you know, our fair city is dealing with decades of divestment, you know, uh, largely due to ongoing racial inequities uh, that are being, you know, made acutely worse, you know, by the, the politics that, that, are, that are dominating our state and beginning to dominate uh, the United States. Uh, and that results in, you know, a dilapidated infrastructure due to just decades of uh, neglect from there not being adequate funding. You know, even when funding was uh, uh, more than available, and that is now showing up in this day and age uh, with uh, uh, tremendous problems with our water system, but also because of uh, freezes, uh, some energy outages that have, have hampered the city. So, yeah, we, we're dealing with our fair issue of uh, infrastructure challenges and crisis and trying to find a way to meet our, our community's needs, you know, with a, a limited amount of uh, resources uh, being made available to us, uh, particularly from the state government. But, you know, I, I can say I think most of the community is uh, up to the challenge and, and folks are trying to figure out ways both on their own and, and, and various efforts collectively uh, to kind of deal with it. But uh, we, we got some challenges ahead, no question. What's the population of blacks in Jackson? What's the population of, in Jackson, period, and what's the percentage or population of blacks? Well, let me put it this way, Brian. If you if you believe the, the U.S. Census, okay, <laughs> uh, the population is uh, roughly 170,000 people, of which about 162,000 of those um uh, would be black people. So Jackson is overwhelmingly black. You know, it's one of the blackest uh, cities in the country. But, you know, there's both concrete census data and anecdotal data that we can point to uh, that our city uh, is beginning to shrink and shrink somewhat rapidly. Uh, but then there's also signs and evidence that certain populations are growing. So we don't really know. Is, is, let, me, let me be real. I don't think any city actually knows the exact number, mm -hmm. but in our case, we kind of, kind of, kind of got two kind of competing dynamics. Just so your audience understands, you know, you got this uh, uh, infrastructure crisis, uh, particularly again with the water, uh, which I think it was forcing a lot of residents to make a choice, particularly those who have children. Do I want to deal with having to deal with boil water notices and not knowing, 
you know, uh, if, if the water is uh, drinkable at any given day, uh, and, and, uh, you know, the health hazards that that poses. So, and that's mainly black folks who I think are making that choice. And, and, uh, we're starting to see some, some evidence of particularly kind of working class black folks, you know, uh, uh, making some hard choices to try to leave. And mainly right now, they're kind of going out to some of the suburbs where there's some severe housing crisis. So that's not going to be a long term. Uh, solution for anybody. But then we also dealing with an increased number of migrants, uh, Latino migrants in particular coming in because they've been chased out of Florida and some of the other states, uh, with these real xenophobic legislation, uh, that was passed, right? Mm-hmm. Basically, uh, forcing a lot of migrant workers to, 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 to leave the state for their own, uh, safety and security. And a good number of those folks, uh, have come to, to, uh, Mississippi. Uh, in numbers that we haven't normally seen that, you know, Latino population in Jackson and Mississippi historically has been fairly low, primarily because, you know, the working conditions are such in large parts of Mississippi, particularly up in the Delta, you know, the major, the large agricultural, uh, plantations is what they basically are. And the food processing plants, they can play back workers basically the same wages they can pay, uh, you know, uh, uh, a migrant worker. So there was no great incentive to bring in cheaper labor, mm-hmm. um, and a cheaper, you know, labor that was, that was coming in, uh, found better access to be able to make a living by going further east to Georgia or to Florida or North Carolina, uh, where their kind of agriculture policy was more welcoming to, uh, migrant workers. Uh, but that, don't, that door seems to be closing. So we have a new influx of folks coming into, to Mississippi from, Georgia and Florida in particular, mainly Florida. This is what we know from us doing a lot of outreach in these communities and trying to work and be in some solidarity with folks. Uh, the vast majority of folks that we come in contact with are from Florida, you know, and, and uh, listen to a lot of their horror stories. But it's not clear, you know, whether they will stay. Right. right? Because the state of Mississippi is following basically ALEC, you know, in, in adopting copycat legislation similar to what or is proposing to adopt adopt copycat legislation similar to what Florida has, which will probably chase a good number of migrant workers away. Uh, now, that won't have the same impact in Mississippi that it, we see it happening in Florida. In Florida, you know, uh, you got a lot of, you know, uh, main agricultural players who are now complaining to Ron DeSantis and the Republican Party about, you know, y'all are hurting the economy by chasing away the, the labor force. Uh, in Mississippi, they can rely on the cheap black labor. So it may not have the same impact here, I would, I would reckon. But, so, you know, it's a state and a city in transition. So let's talk about Cooperation Jackson. When was it formed and how many co-ops are functioning now? Mm-hmm. Uh, May 1st, uh, 2024, would be our official 10-year anniversary. Oh, congratulations. Yeah, thank you. It's been, you know, a lot of hard work. Uh, a lot of blood, sweat, and tears. You know, at the end of the day, we, we, even the parts that, that weren't so beautiful, you kind of reflect upon and, and appreciate, uh, still being here. Now, you know, where we're at, um, the first major institution we should let everybody know that really anchors a lot of what we do, uh, is our community land trust, the, the Fandle Hammer Community Land Trust. And that has a total of 46 properties in it of which there are uh, uh, four uh, major commercial sites, including the Balagoon Center, which is our main kind of operating office, 
uh, and we are in the midst of doing a major uh, overhaul uh, of the Ida B. Wells Plaza as we speak. The construction on that has started so that we can open up uh, the People's Grocery, the Eversville uh, uh, print shop, which is a kind of a splinter off, uh, if you will, from, from the, the uh, community production cooperative to specialize in on like t-shirt printing, some small 3D printing, uh, but also banners and things of that nature. You know, uh, that that piece is, is growing to the, the demand uh, that the CPC was getting and, and needed to back actually expand. But it's forming into its own co-op. So, uh, and then there'll be uh, a cannabis, a medicinal cannabis dispensary uh, that's also opening up there. So, uh, in effect, you know, that's going to be four new co-ops that will be open uh, by 2025. Uh, the grocery store at this point will probably be early 2025. And we're really looking forward to that one because that's been, we made some tremendous progress uh, on the development of that. Uh, we bought the facility, that, that the, the, the plaza. We bought that in uh, 2018. Uh, we had plans to open that in 2020. They were going great. And then we got hit with COVID. Yep. And we basically had to start it all over again, uh, uh, pretty much from scratch. And, uh, that's taken us three years to really pull everything together and the resources and financing all of that together. Uh, so now we're on pace to get that open. So that'll be for new co-ops. Uh, and that's in addition to Freedom Farms, which is our urban farming cooperative, also the community production, uh, cooperative and our green team cooperative. So those are the ones who, you know, survived you know, following uh, the, the hardcore piece of the pandemic, uh, a few other pieces struggled uh, and are, didn't die, but struggled. And the one that's uh, struggling right now uh, that we're trying to do some adjustment with primarily is, is our zero waste uh, cooperative. And that, that does recycling uh, and composting. And then there's a, there's a couple of things that we call kind of production units. Like they aren't full co-ops by our definition, but they do do, you know, a tremendous amount of seasonal work. And so one of those uh, is a catering uh, cooperative that most of its seasonal work is in is, is spring through the fall. And that's called Evers uh, a Catering, named after Mega Evers. And, and uh, the Eversville is, uh, the, the, is also named after Mega Evers, you know, one of our uh, historical champions. And it's actually the Eversville is a piece that we're trying to we are one of a, you know, a longstanding kind of coalitional effort to get the city to change its name from Jackson, which is in honor of Andrew Jackson, which, if, you know, folks should notice, uh, wasn't the most kindest historical character to black and indigenous people, and to change it to, to Mega Evers or Eversville. So that's why, why the, those two things are named in that particular uh, way, uh, to both do some education, some uh, promoting, but to also you know, lift our people up and, and our, our tremendous history. Uh, so that's that's where we are, you know, right now. Like a lot of small businesses, we had to adjust to the pandemic. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it wasn't that, that, that kind to us. A lot of things in the, the market kind of slowed down. Uh, they had an impact on us. Uh, but, you know, I think our, our strategy, uh, particularly why I wanted to start with the, the community land trust piece, because all those businesses operate on community land trust property. And what we were basically able to do, like working in solidarity and collaboration with us, with our model is contingent upon being able to provide virtually rent-free access to these facilities. 
right to each of these co-ops. Rent-free? Virtually rent-free. Now, people have to pay the... Each entity has to pay the taxes on the building, mm-hmm. they have to pay their own utilities, and they have to work, you know, with the community land trust uh, to work on any kind of improvements. But right now, the, the lion's share of kind of any kind of improvements or, or repair comes directly from the community land trust. But that's improving. But what that does and what it was designed to do was to give our businesses a, a, a kind of historic advantage, if you would, knowing that a lot of small businesses, right, be they co-op or otherwise, you know, uh, uh, just single proprietor or family-owned LLCs, a lot of our businesses in particular struggle uh, because our folks basically struggle with, with rent at places that they don't own. So got, our, let's, let's stop there and take a break, and we'll come back after the break. But you're absolutely right when you start talking about the cost of startup a business that rent is high next to labor. Um, they're one and one, one and one, one and two in terms of cost. But we'll be right back, everybody. We're talking uh, about Jackson, Mississippi, and Cooperation Jackson. Callie, this is Black History Month in Asela, the Association for the Study of African American Life and History, has the 2024 theme of African Americans and the Arts. So my question to you is, have you all, you've just given us about nine different co-ops that you're working on or have already started or working to get started. Have you looked at any art kinds of co-ops, music or, um, I don't know, paintings, any, any, any kind of art co-ops in Jackson? We have a, a, a arts collective, and we've definitely looked at that and are still aiming to do that. Unfortunately, uh, one of the things that we were hoping to do, uh, there's a, there's a facility that's right around the corner from us which is operated as a local, uh, this is from our Balagoon Center, it's operated as a local nightclub, uh, and it was uh, uh, up for sale for some years, but the brother was reluctant to sell it. We were trying to to purchase that uh, to turn it into a studio. Unfortunately, he sold, not unfortunately, because, you know, brother's a member of the community, but he, he sold it to a family member who's keeping it as a club. So uh, we are in search of looking for another facility in our community to actually turn into uh, an art studio. Uh, the collective is right now operating out of uh, the Amari Obadeli uh, Community Production Center. And uh, we we throw uh, basically two major kind of art gallery type sessions. Uh, one for Black August that we've been doing now for the past uh, uh, eight years. And the other is around uh, uh, Juneteenth, uh, which we've been doing annually uh, now the last last four years and and what the the collective does is is basically put on a mini festival during during these events uh wherein we highlight local artists you know uh rappers singers other creatives but with the anchor being digital art right because that we have a strong component of digital artists uh who operate within our our cooperatives right the print shop is is a uh uh, brother Kwame is one of the most noted artists around, and Brother Shambay 
uh, who's the, the head of our, our, our organizing team, is also a renowned uh, local artist, and they are part of this uh, uh, collective, uh, which is working towards this long-term peace. And what we want to be able to do is have both a recording studio for local talent. We want to have a, a audio-visual uh, component to that. And then we want to have like a stage kind of theater space. So this particular kind of space that we're looking for or going to have to build out. But this is a, a critical piece of our long-term vision. And one of the things that, that uh, you know, we are noted for in our uh, area, we've done several beautification campaigns, as we call them. And if you come to our, our space, all of our facilities, commercial facilities, uh, have murals on them, right? Uh, big, beautiful murals that you can see, you know, being promoted by uh, the city and other folks uh, that we've contributed to. The largest ones being like, you know, the uh, I.W. Wells Plaza, which where the grocery store and everything is outlined. Uh, we've already got some murals up that have now been up for about four years uh, on that space. They were done in 2019. Uh, and we have a big, beautiful one of, of uh, there uh, that was done by a local artist and, and member and, and a former uh, worker with the, the CPC, the Community Production uh, Cooperative, Sabrina. This was also a profound local artist. Uh, she did a big, beautiful piece of Harriet Tubman. Uh, right next to, to that is another uh, uh, a brother who came from uh, uh, Memphis, Tennessee, but has some roots in uh, Jackson. He came and did one, uh, which is uh, Fannie Lou Hamer on a on a freedom boat. You know, and there's there's several of them just kind of decked out all okay. throughout that. Uh, so yeah, no, uh, I consider myself a child of the Black Arts Movement. You okay. know. Uh, one of the people that, you know, I had the pleasure of knowing and, and growing up around in, on many occasions uh, was the great Amiri Baraka. For those who don't know, uh, you know, Amiri uh, was kind of the, 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 the Black Nations uh, part of the rope uh, based out of Newark, uh, uh, Mississippi, you know, and, and uh, poet, artist, performer. Uh, so I grew up, you know, in and around that and went to, you know, Shule and some other stuff as a as a kid to learn art and I, I'm a graphic artist myself right okay uh, as well as a you know I've done some music uh, production in my my day working with a group that was once known as soul size or quantum uh, projects uh, so you know as it, just one of the key founders and thinkers of this the arts have always been central to, to me and always been kind of implicit in what we want to do because primarily, you know, we are in the business of promoting Black is Beautiful. It is. You know, and we got to lay that foundation for future generations so people will not only see themselves represented in their own community, but see themselves, you know, in the best and positive light and one that we want to portray. Uh, so, you know, if you come to a lot of our stuff, our crew is a heavy Afrofuturist crew, and a lot of our art is very much kind of both within that mode but also within the, the, you know, a lot of our folks have been deeply inspired both by the Black Arts Movement and the Harlem Renaissance. So our crew is very up on this and is very much incorporating it to, to what we're doing. And one of the things that, you know, we, we long-term vision, you know, that we are very much in line with, you know, kind of like the, the present city's uh, leadership with is, you know, Jackson has a rich history, particularly with the blues. And there's some noted blues clubs, you know, there were several black-owned blues record companies based in, in Jackson, some of which have long since passed. But, 
you know, it, it, it's one of your noted blue stops. And we want to highlight that history. And one of the things that we want to do is to actually develop a marketing and promotion co-op that brings more artists and, and, and attention into Jackson. And so, you know, folks like uh, uh, David Banner and some other folks are also thinking likewise, you know, and that's something there's a broad conversation about doing that we are a part of that I think in the course of the next couple of years, uh, you'll see some big things coming out of Jackson, you know, on, on the arts and entertainment. Front. So as you were talking about the mirrors, I was going, that could be a tourist attraction. Just already is. It yeah. is already becoming. Yeah. All right. So when can I come down and see the mirrors? Should I have to wait to August or Juneteenth or? No, no, no. Uh, just you know, just give us a heads up, uh, and and uh, the doors are open. You know, I heard you earlier saying that you know you want some warmer weather. Uh, so you know, I would say if you want to try that, maybe come down April, May before it gets really, really hot and humid. But if you like it hot and humid, you come on through in 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 June, July, and August. For me, I like it hot and humid. Uh, that's some of the best time to both be out in the community and, you know, uh, partake in all the richness of, of what Jackson has to offer. You are know, are you talking about barbecuing now? Is that what you just oh, said? Oh, yeah, barbecuing. what you said. Get you some good pan trout or get you some good uh, catfish. You know, uh, I don't eat pork, but if that's your thing, it's not. Jackson is not going to disappoint you. No, it's um, not, but uh, that fried cornbread and uh, oh, collard greens, I mean, that'll, that'll do it with them. You'll be all right. You'll be, we'll, we'll take care of you on that front. No problem. So when, when we talk about art, uh, often we don't put food in that category. That's right. But that's a, a big piece of art, but not only the, the, the art of how it looks when it's presented, but um, how it affects the body, what it does for the body is food is medicine and all of that. But but food is, is art. I want to tell you a quick story because I grew up in Bluefield, West Virginia. And Bluefield's coal mining country Maybe at the height it may have had 20% blacks working in the mines. My grandfather worked in the mines. My father worked on the uh, on the railroad. And I did a couple years while I was in college work on the railroad. But in college, at Bluefield State College, historically black college, I was the president of the student body in 68-69 school year. And somebody in the 67-68 school year had invited this, this uh, group down to perform. And the current student body didn't know about it, but I went to there as the president because I had to pay them. So I'm on stage behind the curtain watching these people fly through the air. And see, I played football through a couple years in college, and I thought football players were, were it. But when I watched the Avon Ailey dance troupe, when I watched these black folk just all that they could do with their body, I was mesmerized, man. I, when you talk about art, and it's like it, it just blew me away of what they could do with their bodies attuned to music. So you mentioned Harlem Renaissance, but going to New York to see Ivan Ailey was just a highlight after that, too. Anytime I could see them, and they're they're being D.C. in February. Oh, this month, they're, they'll be here. I haven't gotten tickets mm -hmm. yet, but I try to go down to see them at the Kennedy Center. But it's just, it's amazing of what, what we can do in, uh, 
Judith Jameson had a revelation with the name of the of her last the piece. It was always the last piece of the mm -hmm. show where she had an umbrella and she was dancing with this umbrella. So what we can do with the arts as as black folks is just absolutely amazing. And I had no idea that Jackson has this rich history. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, makes me want to come even more, man. Yeah, yeah. Well, well come on, though. It's a, rich, it's a very rich history, you know. Uh, there's some work in, in that regard that we've been struggling to do. Uh, you know, there's a there's a district that we've been trying to get, you know, many players have been trying to get up, up off the ground. But I think there's some major emotion towards that end, which is uh, street in downtown where, uh, you know, that was kind of the, the center of black life in the, the 30s, 40s, you know, and, and uh, 50s in particular. Uh, and it's where many of those record companies uh, uh, were situated that I was mentioning earlier. Mm -hmm. uh, so that piece is really starting to move. Uh, but also highlighting a number of different things, you know, in the city. And one of the things that, that I think has benefited from, you know, it, it was many years in the making and a lot of fight and struggle uh, to get there. But they are uh, these what they call the two museums, right? The, the Black Museum and the Mississippi, you know, General History Museum uh, that's in uh, downtown Jackson. And it does a fairly good representation, not not because, you know, the powers that be wanted that way, but because folks struggled to make sure that a real history of Fannie Lou Hamer and Mega Evers and uh, uh, the Republican New Africa, like all those things were, were told. But that is also now, you know, uh, I think successfully drawing in more interest into the deep history of, of uh, uh, Jackson, you know, for, for the history of the struggle in the city, you know, about people struggling in the city, but also, the culture that that we created to make meaning and and uh, you know bring joy to our lives. So Amen. definitely come check that out. Amen. Yeah, I want to check out that museum. Um, it it made highlights when a certain president went to visit it, but I don't want to go down that road. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I did Fannie Lou Hamer. I, I just I see this video of her saying, "I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired." Sick and just, tired. Yeah, yeah. She's one of my heroines. Okay, sir, what, if anything, is keeping you from producing more co-ops or having successful co-ops? You know, finance is always a challenge. You know, that, that's a challenge regardless, I think, anywhere. But outside of, of that, for us, it's really just trying to figure out this kind of, uh, where we are right now, is really trying to just figure out this post uh, pandemic, if you want to call it that. I mean, the pandemic is not fully done with us mm -hmm. yet because, uh, you know, I think it's endemic to, to our, our species now. Uh, we're actually going through a pretty big wave of it and, uh, uh, a respiratory virus, virus has been hitting Jackson hard, uh, the last, uh, well, in, in January. We'll see how it keeps going in February. But, you know, the, the, there are ways in which social habits in the market have changed. That we have to change around. Um, you know, the, the, the level of kind of an overall en engagement, people coming out to do things, to shop, that has been drastically reduced. Uh, we can tell you from our business, you know, since the pandemic, uh, and we know that there's a greater reliance on online shopping now. 
you know, which kind of got baked into on a new level, higher level, uh, because of the pandemic and people, you know, uh, you know, staying in place and working from home. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I follow all these stories and you can see it kind of anecdotally with, you know, the grocery stores and, and other retail stores closing uh, earlier, challenges finding workers. We've had our own experience with that. And so, you know, we are trying to think of ways in which we keep extenuating the local and the local ecosystem and the relations of production that are, that are build strength in our community and build relationships in our community. But I got to tell you, we are working counter towards the major kind of trends of everything going online. And this is not just impacting us. You know, you starting to, you know, from what everything I'm hearing, reading, you know, I read The Economist, I read Wall Street Journal, I keep up on these things. And, you know, there's a lot of, you know, just evidence around how Amazon is, for in particular, is dominating the market in such a way that it is just basically restructuring the market, setting prices and, you know, not on the, in the court with the, you know, uh, the law of supply and demand such as it is. Um, but, you know, they are demanding that, that producers produce at their sale prices and they're getting, right? Mm-hmm. Because that's kind of where more of the market is structured. And in, how, in other ways in which this is showing up, you know, we have far more uh, vacancies that like to retail shops all throughout town. And I see this when I travel to other cities. You know, I'm seeing a lot of other major retails and moms and pops, like there are far more vacancies. You know, but all the evidence is like the economy is rebounding and inflation is coming under control. But, you know, a lot, a lot of that is very clearly, you know, the market being restructured around this digital kind of infrastructure. And local businesses, ours included, are going to have to figure out how to deal with that going forward. I think we have a strength in that we've concentrated, you know, around food sovereignty, food uh, uh, production and ecologically kind of sustainable pieces that kind of everybody needs because they're still, you know, kind of consuming. Uh, but, you know, for us, we got to make a choice. Do we need to build up our, our digital infrastructure such that people can just buy products online, you know, from from us, from like our CPC in terms of T-shirts or prints or uh, uh, furniture and equipment, things like that, which we're, we're, we're doing and want to scale up? Uh, because that means, just so folks are clear, that means you don't have to keep, you know, the kind of the, the, the physical interface of having like a public audience coming to your door buying from you. Mm-hmm. You know, you just build out for more space for productive, you know, kind of uh, uh, capacity. Now, I think we can do that in the short term. But what that also means, uh, if you don't have people engaged in kind of retail work and activity and the, the increase in you know automation and digitization of everything, that could be a serious reckoning for black folks. Because that means that, the, you know, we the first ones to all saying, you know, last one's tired, first one's fired. Uh, and so these trends and automation has been having an impact on the black community, you know, since yeah. the 50s in yeah. different ways. But we're starting to see a spike that we're going to have to adjust to. So for, for us, you know, Vernon, these are the big challenges that we kind of have to adjust to. You know, the, we, we had, a, uh, I think a solid strategy and plan. And we're executing, I think, in a in a very healthy way, a very phased kind of development piece. 
you know, before the pandemic. Now we're trying to adjust, you know, so folks understand what I mean. Like with the grocery store, you know, if, if the grocery stores become, uh, if Amazon again through like Whole Foods, if that becomes the norm and the trend and people not going into the, the, the stores, we then have to figure out, well, what is our niche to get people in our local community to come into the store? Or we're going to have to figure out how do we adjust in such a way that we just become more like a food uh, processing unit and a warehouse and then, you know, develop a corresponding delivery system, you know, so that we can c compete and stay afloat. And these are strategic choices that we got to make, which affect what type of capital do we are we trying to, you know, like a, like appeal to what type of decisions are we trying to make? You know, what debt burdens do, do we assume? So we're in a very kind of weird space right now post-pandemic that I don't think we're alone in by far, but I can tell you, you know, we are, we thinking long and hard about what this next five to 10 years is going to be because we kind of thought, you know, once things open up, things were going to bounce back and that proved to be an Aaron's assumption. Yeah. Yeah. So let me ask you, Freedom Farms Cooperative, how many acres do you all farm? Currently we're farming five acres in the city. But we're about to expand to a, uh, uh, we have access and, and partially own, uh, a 200 acre plot. And, uh, we are going to, we're already starting to do, we're doing the, the soil remediation. We just got access to this at the end of 2022. So we're doing a lot of soil remediation. Cause part of what we are aiming to do, again, long term thinking and planning, uh, is convert a good portion of that to, uh, growing, uh, hemp. And again, not cannabis, but hemp. That we can make clothes, we can make oils, we can make concrete building materials and things out of, uh, because we're trying to integrate a long-term ecologically sustainable strategy. And the thing that we want to support with that is also, uh, you know, making basically a bamboo forest, uh, that would accompany us to kind of be intertwined with this. Again, we're thinking about how do we supply our own resource needs for construction work, which, you know, be it for housing or be it some of the furniture or the things that we aim to do with this, this small manufacturing site that we had with the CPC. Uh, so a big part of that is being set up to do that. Then the other part of that, there will be some, some, uh, uh cannabis grown, you know, there, but the other part is we want to really expand out, you know, particularly in the sale of, of kale, collard greens and mustard greens. Those are the best sellers that, that, uh, well, you just uh, you just, you just uh, hit my heart with kale, collard greens, and mustards. Okay, <laughs> yeah, kale and mustard together are phenomenal. Okay, yeah. uh, so two hundred and five acres. Is there still land available down in in your area? To oh yeah, there's still land available, and as I was saying, with some of these population shifts and dynamics and market shifts, more stuff is opening up, particularly commercial retail stuff. But you know, I, I would caution. Have a plan to think about where this economy is going and shifting if you want to get into that. Um, you know, cause we were very much in ourselves to give you, so folks learn from my history. Our first, uh, six years in particular was trying to, and we did a fair job. We didn't get everything we wanted, but we were very keen on trying to secure as much land as possible in the community in an effort, you know, kind of decommodified and make sure it stayed in community hands. So that our, our, our people and our interests don't get gentrified out. Mm -hmm. And we made a definite decent impact on that. But some of the shifts, uh, that are happening, 
uh, we slowed down purchasing, you know, even before the pandemic on, on land. And now, you know, there's some things that, that have come online that we want to get, but we have to make sure in the long term, you know, the money's going to work. They just put it back, you know, and that we don't buy something that winds up become a burden on us and a burden on the community because we can't develop it, right? And, and uh, you know, the way in which we've approached uh, our development piece, uh, you know, we're, we, we, it's a slow growth. It's not like we're going to just build a whole bunch of houses immediately uh, because we, we try to be very clear about who and how we take money. And, and to this point, uh, our strength is that, uh, it's both a strength and a weakness. Our strength is that everything that we own, we own outright. We don't have one penny of debt to anybody. Oh, uh, and I can say they member. But Kali, you know, Kali, we only have a minute left. I want to have you oh, back on another time. But what message would you like to leave people with, particularly for the future? Uh, we got to dig in. We got a lot of work to do. You know, uh, the, the, the basic thing I just want to say is, you know, particularly to, to black people, take the climate threat uh, real because it is. And let's start doing some long term planning on, on, on figuring out how we are going to address this uh, to make sure we will be around uh, and are able to affect the just transition to, to make the change that we want so that future generations can be here and enjoy the planet as we have. Future generations, bro. OK, got it. Everybody out there will see you next Thursday. Please live cooperatively.